Here we go. Let's grab our Bibles, turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. As you do that, I wanna, want you to be thinking about something. I want you to think if you've ever found yourself in this type of scenario. Okay, you're decided that uh, you have some friends over, maybe some family, and you've decided you're going to engage in some healthy competition over a board game. All right? And so you get out your favorite game, and you get all the pieces t- out, and you're setting it up, and... Lo and behold, right near the end of all the setup, you realize you're missing a piece, right? And so you stop, you check the box, you look under the table, and then you announce to the group, hey, we're missing a piece, right? And, and if you're in my house, the possibilities of where that piece is at that point is limitless, all right? Um, like when we clean out our couch, which thanks to my wonderful wife is a lot more than if it was up to me. Um, when we clean out our couch, we'll find the most random things. The other day I pulled out a cushion and I found a battery stuck to a magnet tile, a bunch of Cheerios, and a toothbrush. And I was just like, okay, um, I don't even want to know the scenario of how this all got here. But the, like, so the, the idea of actually finding a small little game piece in my house is, man, probably not going to happen. And I can remember in my childhood growing up and we'd be playing games and we'd be missing a piece and there'd be a Lego guy who like was the substitute, right, of like the bishop in the chess game. And it's like, that's just all we had. But when, when that happens, you're kind of like, well, the integrity of the game is compromised a bit. Like, it's just not the same. It's not the, the way the game was designed to be played was with all the right pieces in the right place. And, and so it's kind of disappointing. You don't really get to play it the way it was designed. The title of the message today is The Final Piece. No, that's not a typo. P-E-A-C-E is the word. Because we're closing out our series, Power Players, where we've taken a look at five powerful pieces that changed the game, and the final piece is peace. Now, when you hear the word peace, uh, a lot of different things might come to your mind. Um, For a lot of people, it's the absence of war, strife, chaos, commotion. We say phrases like, man, I just need some peace and quiet when our lives feel busy or full of noise. At the end of someone's physical life, we usually offer the condolence of, may they rest in peace. But what we're going to see today is that Just the absence of something is an incomplete definition of peace. True peace is not just the absence of things we don't want, it is the presence of the thing we ultimately need. And Jesus is an example of someone who lived in perfect peace. Right here at the end of his life, knowing what was in front of him with the cross and his death, He isn't solely thinking about himself, rather he's pouring out his peace onto his disciples. So as we look at this passage in John chapter 14, Jesus has just finished encouraging them to have faith. Now he's going to show them what it means to live at peace. Read with me in John chapter 14 verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. 
Love is a major theme throughout the Gospel of John. It's mentioned as a noun or a verb 56 times throughout the whole Gospel. And again, Jesus is, is bringing it up and around the idea of obedience as a central proof of love. So Valentine's Day, which is on Friday, right? And whether you had like an anti-Valentine's Day party or a Galentine's or a Dudentine's or a, well, you know, you'd, <laughs> you doted all over your loved one with chocolates and flowers, whatever, maybe somewhere in the middle of all of that. However you feel about Valentine's Day, there, there's no doubt that Valentine's Day is the ultimate prove your love holiday. Uh, you might feel a little bit of that around like Christmas and like getting good gifts for the people that you love or on birthdays or things like that. But Valentine's is just centered around the idea. There's no other day on the day of the year where people go, I will know how much I am loved today by how I'm treated on this day. And my personality is just kind of this, like if you tell me I have to do something a certain way on a certain day or it doesn't count, I'm not going to do it. That's just kind of this rebellious nature maybe that I have. I'm working on it. I'm sanctifying my life just like you are with the Lord. I'm working on it. But what I find is that, man, it just doesn't feel like it matters. When I'm standing in line with 12 other guys paying three times what I would normally pay for flowers because we're all getting the exact same thing for our wives, that doesn't feel like love. It feels like obedience. Maybe I'm obeying the idea of Valentine's Day. But rather, think about it. as like a good husband or a boyfriend or um, a friend or, you know, just people that I care about in my life. I can listen and understand that that person in my life who I love, like for me, like I know that my wife loves vernaculous flowers and Chick-fil-A ice cream, right? So I'm not going to go out and get, you know, a dozen yellow roses and mint chip ice cream because... That's what I would maybe want to eat, the flowers or whatever. But I'm not going to do that because I know how my wife feels loved. I know what her love languages are. I know how she needs to process through things and all of these things. Like, so I'm not going to just do whatever I want, but then continually say that I, I love my wife. Rather, I'm going to obey in a sense. I'm going to understand and respond in a way that's not about me. It's about what she wants to show her, man, I love you. You before me. And you take that into the spiritual. And Jesus is saying that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that's not just just blindly obey what I'm going to tell you to do and everything will be good in your life. Rather, if you love me, if you want to have a real relationship with Jesus, then you would know what he says, how he lives, and you would respond and live, live in a manner that represents that. Now, it, it doesn't sound that difficult. It kind of sounds easy, but it, it truly is. All the husbands in the room said amen. <laughs> then Jesus knows this, so he says, I'm going to send a helper to be with you forever. I know I'm going to leave. I've spent a lot of time with you. I've taught you a lot of things. If you love me, you'll do what I've done, but I know you can't do it on your own. It's going to get harder and harder to do it. So I'm going to ask the Father to send a helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, he says. The spirit that will inspire some of them to write books of the New Testament. 
The spirit that exists in the room today as we open up his word and read it and it's illuminating the hearts and lives of the people here. That spirit. It will help you keep my commandments. The spirit will give you peace in life knowing that you're doing what I've asked you to do. It's not about removing something. It's about activating something in your life so that when it's hard, you can have peace knowing that you're doing exactly what God has asked you to do. First point for this morning is peace is activated through obedience. Peace is activated through obedience. So here's the deal with this helper, this spirit of truth. This is the Holy Spirit, right? We just sang about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, a lot of songs around this person and work of the Spirit. And you got to know that this, this Holy Spirit, it's, He's way more than a power player, right? He's so much more than that. There's so much we can say and need to say about the Holy Spirit, so we're going to after we finish John. The next couple of verses, or chapters, chapters 15 and 16, are some of the best passages to describe the work and the person and what it means to live in the Spirit with the Holy Spirit in your life. And so we're going to save them for a standalone series after we finish the book of John. We're going to skip over chapters 15 and 16 and go right into 17 starting next week with a new series. But I'm really excited to know that we're going to spend time together as a church preaching the Holy Spirit. But what you need to know is that Jesus is promising to his disciples right here one of the roles of the Holy Spirit in our lives even today is that of the helper. Parakletos is a term that literally means one called alongside to help. It has the connotation of a helper, comforter, counselor, exhorter, intercessor, encourager, and advocate. The only way obedience can activate peace in your life is with the help of the helper. Let's continue through our passage, verse 18. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. This is a reference to his resurrection, which will give them life, ultimately. But also, because of the Trinity and his connection to the Spirit, his presence will literally be with them in the Helper, the Holy Spirit. He says, in that day, you will know that I am the Father, I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. It's in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, in the believer, that gives them a direct relationship with Jesus and the Father. It's an amazing thing. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Again, obedience, activating peace in our life by knowing we're obeying Christ. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Loving God allows us to know and see God more. And then Judas, not Iscariot, important side note, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world. Now remember, they're still all sitting at dinner together, right? A lot has happened in this uh, Last Supper. And these are significant moments because these are Jesus' last moments, but nobody really like truly gets that. He keeps talking about how he's going to die, and it's a total buzzkill on the evening. Everybody's kind of like, like bummed out. 
But nobody truly, everybody still kind of thinks they know what's about to happen. So here comes Judas, not the bad one, he's, he's the good one. And he hears Jesus seemingly contradict himself because he's just said a few times that the world will see him no more. And then only the disciples will see him, but the rest of the world won't see him. And that was so confusing for these men because they had this idea of what the Messiah was going to be. They still had this picture in their mind that Jesus was going to rise to power and set up an earthly kingdom and the whole world would know that he was the Messiah. So for him to keep preaching that he's, he's going away, no one's going to see me, I'll, I'll manifest myself to you, which we know after the resurrection Jesus only showed himself to his followers, like the rest of the world didn't know, didn't see him in any physical way. So in Judas' mind, he's like, this isn't how this is supposed to work. You're supposed to be the king. Everyone's going to know who you are. So he asks a question. And Jesus answers in verse 23. Or sorry, up a couple verses. The world won't see me, and only those who love me will get to see me. That doesn't make sense to Judas. And Jesus' answer in 23 says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Again, linking obedience with genuine love, saying that will be the qualifier for those who actually get to see Jesus in their life. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. That peace in knowing that we are obeying Christ means that we are connected to God the Father, and we can live in a way of peace. Verse 25, he says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. I see so much of my relationship with God in my relationship with my kids, right? Um, See, we're thick in the middle of trying to teach obedience right now in our home. And it's like, it's really hard. It's really hard because you don't just want them to, like, be a robot and do what you say because you said it. You want to capture their heart. I remember so much growing up, like, this phrase my parents would say all the time, I want you to obey right away with a right heart attitude, right? It's, like, still ingrained in me. And it's funny now, here I am, and I'm like, that's what I want from my kids. I don't want you just to do it with this, like, like, (laughs) kind of attitude. Fine, I'll do it. I want you to actually understand that this is good for you. This is a better way to live. I want you to live a life of obedience. And what I'm learning is it's the most unnatural thing for my children. They want to rebel. They want to do what they want. So sometimes I have to help them. I have to encourage them. I have to remind them of the truth. I have to teach them. You know how much more peace is in my house? When there's obedience. And man, how much does that parallel my own life with Christ? I look at my life and all the stress and anxiety and chaos that I experience is most often a result of not obeying what God has asked me to do. Thinking that I know what's best, I know what I should do, I know what the best route is, instead of clearly listening to what God has commanded me to do. Here's a truth for us this morning. Obedience is not just saying no to sin. It is saying yes to God. 
Obedience is not just saying no to sin, it is about saying yes to God. I, th- I think I've lived the majority of my life believing that if I just say no to sinful things, to the fleshly desires in my life, that I'm being obedient. But if obedience stops there for us, we are missing out on some real peace in our life. Because true obedience is saying yes to God. Let me break it down like this. I, um, I don't curse or talk bad about people, but I haven't shared my faith with anyone in years. I don't sleep around. I don't act promiscuous. But I haven't used my season of singleness to pour into discipleship relationships. I'm really good with my money. I save. I don't buy a bunch of flashy items. But I don't steward my money or invest in the church and the work of God. Right? I mean, I'm coming for you a little bit today. But only because God has come for me this week. Brent, I'm glad you're not doing bad things in your life, but when are you going to start doing the things that I've asked you to do? Back to my kids. If Mason, my oldest, he's five now, if he never smacked his brother again, if he never talked back to his mama, if he never flipped out when I turned off the TV before he wanted me to, if he never did any of those things again, but the next time I said, hey, man, go get your shoes on, we got to go, and he said no, would I consider him obedient? Mason, come on, get your shoes on. No, excuse me. No, Dad, it's okay. I didn't hit Jax today. It doesn't work like that. Peace is activated through obedience, and obedience is saying yes to God. Now watch this. Jesus is going to drop one of the most comforting verses in Scripture on his disciples. Really, our theme verse for the morning, verse 27, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is the final peace. This is the peace that Jesus experienced as he was walking the earth, a supernatural, otherworldly peace that gave him the confidence that he was following and obeying his Father. One of the most significant theological terms in the Old Testament is this word, Shalom. It appears approximately 250 times. John MacArthur gives a definition of one of the connotations and meanings as a personal peace, which is not merely in the negative sense of absence of trouble or conflict, but positively referring to completeness, wholeness, contentment, welfare, health, prosperity, harmony, and fulfillment. Peace is one of the blessings that flow from a right relationship with God. The peace that the world is offering you is based on your circumstances. The peace that God is offering lives above your circumstances and rests in God. Paul describes this type of peace in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. That's peace. But this is the type of peace that requires faith. 
Our second point this morning is that peace is received through faith. Jesus' disciples were about to walk through the hardest days of their lives. Brokenhearted over the idea that Jesus was leaving, he kept reminding them again and again, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. He offers them a message of comfort and hope, but they're going to have to have faith to be able to receive it. Let's read in verse 28. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now that I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. It's one of the major themes of the book of John, coming straight from Jesus' mouth, that you may believe. Peace is received through faith. And Jesus wants to build their faith by proving that everything that he has promised will come true, even when it feels like nothing is happening the way that it should. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You ready for another story about my kids? I hope so, because it's February in Minnesota, so most of my life is like trapped in this house with these tiny humans, and it's like my whole connotation of life. But I'm taking uh, Mason and Jackson to go get a haircut uh, the other day, and, and Mason's been a few times now, so he knows that if he has a good haircut, he gets a sucker. And so we're driving, and he, he just pipes up from the back, and he says, Dad, do you think they'll have cherry suckers? Cherry's his favorite. And I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, maybe, but, like, if they don't, like, there's, there's plenty to choose from. Like, you'll be all right. And he's concerned. He's like, well, but I don't like any of the other kinds. I like cherry. Do you think they're going to run out of cherry before we get there? You know, just imagine this long line of, line of children getting a haircut, all taking cherry suckers, and he's going to be the last one. Super concerned. So I'm like, hey, let's have a good, good parenting moment here. I'm going to, you know, teach my kids some stuff right now. So I'm like, hey, listen, buddy, you can't always get what you want out of life, you know, sometimes you just have to take the cards as they're dealt, and like a good neighbor, God is there, like I'm coming up with all the lines, <laughs> I don't know, I'm trying to, trying to turn it into a big parenting moment, you know, and uh, I was like, listen man, if, if, they, if they don't have cherry, if, they, if there's no cherry, it'll be okay, and he's quiet for a minute, and then I just hear him go, well God can fix that, <laughs> now I'm intrigued. So I'm like, really? Okay, how can God fix that? And he goes, with a miracle. A miracle is something happening that you didn't expect. I think, Dad, that God is going to fill that bowl with cherry suckers before we get there. And I'm like, kind of rack my brain. I'm like, okay, how do I correct this theologically? Um, and, then <laughs> and then I pause. And I'm like, my kid has faith enough in his God to believe that God would care enough about cherry suckers to put him in the bowl. And do we get there? The bowl, only cherry suckers. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that would have been cool. That would have been cool. But, but no, there was plenty of cherry suckers. And he, he comes in, and like literally he walks up, and it's like on the desk, and he checks it, and he just looks back at me with this big, like, told you. <laughs> told you, cherry suckers. And his faith grew that day. His faith grew. He received peace 
knowing that God cared enough about a five-year-old boy's after-haircut cherry sucker. I want to have enough faith to find peace in the fact that my God loves me enough to give me good and wonderful gifts in my life. That he has a plan and a purpose for me. That he knit me together in my mother's womb and he knows every single hair on my head and he knows every single day of my life. Especially the hard days when I need a little more faith and he says, peace. My peace I leave with you. As the world gives, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let them be afraid. Receive peace through faith. Last couple of verses here. Look at verse 30. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Jesus' final words during the Last Supper are a confirmation of both his divinity and his submission to the Father. He makes it clear that he is not powerless against the ruler of this world, Satan, the enemy but rather that he is submissive to the Father so that the world will know he loves the Father. Here's the last point. Peace is displayed through submission. Peace is displayed through submission. Now this word submission um, in the church has kind of become like a dirty word, right? We don't like it. It's, uh, it feels like coercion. It feels like something that um, is oppression for us. And so um, we kind of think of it like this. This is my, my friend Brad. And Brad is uh, a great man of, of many things, but he's also a UFC fan, right? You can admit that in church. We're here. It's safe. What is this? We're going to pray for you right now. In the No. Like, okay, so we, I have a ton of respect for UFC fighters, right? Because not only is their sport, like, super grueling, but they have to have a mastery of skills. Like, I think a lot of times you look at fights, and we look at um, certain fights that happen, and it's like the 10-second knockout, right? It's like the, the match starts, and, like, the guy has, like, a flying knee kick, and the other guy goes to sleep because he doesn't want to fight anymore. And so he just, like, the fight's over, and everybody's like, oh, that was insane. But that's kind of rare, right? That doesn't happen all the time. And so most of the fights are super technical. There's a lot of strategy involved. And what you might see more often is something called a submission, right, where someone gets someone in a hold, and just kind of holds them in this position. And the goal is that eventually they're going to realize they have no way out. There's nothing they can do. And so they're going to tap out, right? Just stay here for a second, Brett. Okay. All right. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> so, but guys, this is what I think we view submission as in the church to God. That God has somehow got us in this position where finally we're so helpless. And he's just back here laughing like, you can wrestle all you want. You can try to get out. It's not happening. Like eventually you're either going to like pass out and die or you're going to tap out. Thank you, Brad. <laughs> Submission to God is, is nothing like this. But I had to admit, like, it, I was like broken by this idea that that is actually how I've lived the Christian life for a long time. 
thinking that my submission to God was forced upon me to where I had no other choice and I just had to do it or I was just, I was going to fail. Like, God, you're, you're fine, you win. I'll just, get, here it is. That's not true peace in Christ. True peace in Christ, true submission is not relying on yourself to have it all figured out or to even know how it's going to turn out, but to live in a way that's constantly welcoming God's plan and authority over your life. It's a choice. It's saying, God, you know what? I want you to be the one who's leading me. I don't want to do it myself anymore. And the world looks at you differently when you live with this kind of peace in your life. When you filter every decision, every choice, every opportunity through the lens of, am I submitting myself to God? Or am I struggling to have it make sense and work to my advantage and then I'll just slap an amen on the back end of it to tell people that, hey, no, I prayed about it and this is what God wants me to do. But the world can see right through that because they live the exact same way. We live in a culture right now that is trying so hard to reconcile morality in their own lives. To somehow figure out a way that ourselves can be the master of ourselves and we can go to ourselves to find all the answers that ourselves have. And it's creating chaos in the world. We are so far away from world peace. And I believe it's because we are looking in the wrong place. There's a missing piece in our life. And we can't look in ourselves. We have to look to Jesus. Friends, I'm telling you, it's going to change your life. We see it in the example of how Jesus walked the earth. No matter what came at him, all his circumstances, all the power that rests within him as fully God and fully man, and he denied it all, submitting himself to the Father. We see it in the 11 disciples left in this room who were going to then go through some really hard days and then go out into all the world and preach the gospel and build the church and create a legacy of why we're gathered here in the room this morning. And I believe that God has it for every single person in the room today. That we can experience a different side of life when we display peace through submission. That's our last point. Peace is displayed through submission. And then Warren Wiersbe says it like this. Salvation means we are going to heaven. But submission means that heaven comes to us. So I want to close our service this morning by praying a prayer of submission. Maybe you're listening to this and you just crave true peace in your life. You want to activate it through obedience. You want to receive it by faith. And then you want to display it through submission. Maybe for the first time you want to submit your whole life to Christ. Or maybe over these past few minutes together you've just been convicted by that spirit of truth about an area of your life that you've kind of kept off limits from the Lord. And you 
ready just to submit. Wherever you find yourself, you can pray this prayer and know the final peace that comes only from Jesus. So as we pray, you can feel free to repeat this prayer as I pray it. Pray it in your own heart. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and let's just, let's just pray this together. Dear Jesus, I want to have true peace. I know I cannot find it on my own. I realize that I am a sinner who needs to be saved. I want to be obedient. I want to have faith. And I want to submit myself to you. You can have every part of me. Thank you for dying in my place on the cross. Thank you for shedding your blood to pay for my sins. I believe in you and accept you into my life. Change me completely so I can know peace 